electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thanks, guys. Fast Money does start right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Karen Feinerman, should technology permit. Why what's been the biggest boost for the market may turn out to be the biggest risk. We'll tell you how the Fed could go from friend to foe. Plus, a brand new season of Fortnite is underway with the Red Hot Game means for creator Epic and the rest of the gaming industry. And Guy has got a fast pitch for us. Will the traders buy in or should he give up the ghost? But we start off with a developing story out of D.C. The Justice Department law looking to crack down on protections for social media companies. Elon Moyes got more on the story. Elon. Melissa, the DOJ's proposal strikes right at the heart of the business model for platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Google. The DOJ is calling for three key carve-outs to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The first is what they're calling the Bad Samaritan carve-out for platforms that facilitate or solicit illegal activity. The second is specific exemptions for child exploitation, terrorism, and cyber-stalking. And there would also be case-specific carve-outs for platforms that have actual knowledge of illicit activity or when there's a violation of a court judgment. Now, to be clear, the DOJ cannot do this alone. It would need Congress to act to change the law. But big tech doesn't have a lot of friends on Capitol Hill these days. Just today, Republican Senator Josh Hawley unveiled a bill that would remove tech's liability protections unless the companies promise to act in good faith or pay a $5,000 fine to users if they don't. Meanwhile, Democratic Senator Mark Warner said that he believes Section 230 has allowed companies to turn a blind eye to a host of ills. But, Melissa, he also said he's worried that the DOJ is using these tools as a way to get big tech companies to cave in to President Trump. Back over to you. Elon, what are the odds of anything passing in Congress? I mean, I understand it's bipartisan, but there are a lot of bipartisan things that don't, don't pass. Well, we've already seen legislation that speaks to this. Senator Lindsey Graham introduced something called the Earn It Act uh, earlier this year. Um, That has yet to get a markup in committee. Um, So what I think you're seeing is a lot of legislation just getting stalled because of the pandemic, because of the logistics of of, uh, marking up bills these days. So I think that the odds of something happening before November are very small, Mm -hmm. but you will see a lot of rhetoric um, coming from both the administration and from Capitol Hill. All right. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy in a very dark Washington, D.C. for us. All right, so, so we don't know what form any, anything will take place in, whether it be legislation or our targets um, by regulators. But what we do know is that big tech has a target on its back. So, Dan Nathan, how do you trade it? It's remarkable that these stocks shrug everything off. At some point, I don't know, investors might have to, might have to actually grapple with this. 
Yeah, I mean, they might. And it's not likely going to be in 2020 unless there are some similar sort of issues that we saw in the 2016 election where these large platforms were co-opted um, by bad actors. You know, the, the, the thing with the 230 rule here is, like you said, it's going to need some sort of bipartisan legislation. I don't really think this... Um, threat from the president with the executive order from a couple weeks ago is really going to have the impact on a Twitter, let's say, than he meant to be. He does not like being edited on Twitter. Therefore, he wanted to roll back protections that they have as a platform, not as a publisher. I think Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, has kind of stood his ground here and said, we're willing to have those protections rolled back because we're not going to have our platform used this way. So for all intents and purposes, Twitter stock has acted very well. On the flip side of it, regulation is going to be a very meaningful headwind for a lot of these companies going forward. Obviously, Amazon has faced it on uh, no shortage of issues, very different than those of Facebook and Twitter. But Amazon keeps working higher. That seems to be the one name, you know, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, post-pandemic, that the investor class is in universal agreement that everything is working uh, in their favor. Tim? Yeah, Dan brings up a point. I, I, I'm not sure what the stocks are going to do in the short run. Remember, uh, this, this pressure, and you're talking about, Melissa, that it's not just uh, it's the political pressure from DOJ, but how about the FTC? How about uh, almost a year ago when they essentially teamed up and divvied up oversight uh, on the FTC antitrust? So there, there is pressure, and I think there's, there's a fair amount of political ill will. And I think this, is, this issue is a very interesting bipartisan issue. I, I, I have to weigh in on that. I, I think um, the irony is, of course, that if you frame this as trying to protect freedom of speech, um, you're really hindering it by harming the companies that actually give license to it, and therefore they're not going to give freedom of speech at all. Um, but I think we, we are all aware of illicit activity and bad actors on the Internet, and I think there are certain activities that need to be monitored. Culpability is, is a very difficult thing to define here, but back to what the stocks do, um, you know, they, they continue to move higher. Since May 29th, Google, which was front and center on this, uh, and, and certainly Twitter was, Dan pointed out how well Twitter's traded, Google's up 3% in the last 13 sessions. Um, Facebook, if, if anything, was was uh, we, we speculated whether if they were siding with the administration or not, which, of course, they've returned uh, in the other direction. Were they going to re-rate based upon it? And it looked like they were. So, uh, yeah, I think you have to hold before you, you really think that this is uh, time to, to, to wholesale sell. Um, I think you have different reasons to sell these companies that are valuation based uh, than this right here and now. Joe Biden has said that uh, we should revoke Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And, and I bring this up, Guy, because why is this different from the drug pricing issue during the past election when a single tweet would send the industry and, and the stocks in the industry just sort of reeling? I mean, isn't this sort of the same? This is an issue. Big tech has been demonized, whether it's valid or not, by both sides of the aisle here going into this very contentious political season. I don't think there is a difference, Mel. And I think to answer your question, the only difference is the markets become somewhat desensitized to all sort of the rhetoric that goes back and forth. There was a great movie with Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. I believe it was called The Rain Man. And I mention it because, as I recall, May 15th was a Friday, if you remember. I know you do. And I mention that because that was the day right around the time of our show being coming out. The DOJ state attorneys general said they were going to come after Google, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. As Tim pointed out, the stock, I think, was trading at the time 1370. It never flinched as we went into the next week. 
and my, sense, my suspicion is they're not going to flinch now. There's a lot of reasons to dislike Facebook, and I can rattle them all off, and I find Cessbook to be abhorrent on a number of different levels, but you got to like the stock because advertisers don't leave and people don't leave, and that's a recipe for a stock that goes, in the words of the great Dennis Gartman, from the lower left to the upper right. Karen? Yeah, well, I agree and disagree with Guy. I think it is different uh, than drug pricing because drug pricing is pretty easy to get behind for anyone. And Google and Facebook, I mean, they offer free products that people like to use. And so I don't think it has the near universal, um, you know, disdain that uh, drug companies that are hiking prices do. So that's, that's one difference. But in terms, I agree, if, uh, it doesn't really matter in the short term. These are sort of longer term issues that take time to play out. And this market is sort of the most near-term focused market, I think I recall in, I don't know, maybe ever. So I just don't think it'll matter in the short term. And also, as we see the uh, reopening a little little bumpier than maybe we had anticipated, the FANG stocks do well in that scenario. So that's what I think is going on. Google's my biggest position. And, uh, and, you know, long Facebook as well. And extended Fang. And, and maybe that's the reason, Dan, why, for instance, Apple in yesterday's session completely shrugs off um, the news that the EU is launching two formal investigations into uh, its app store and Apple Pay. I mean, it, it seems like it doesn't matter who is going after big tech. It doesn't matter what the fines or, or the consequences could be. There is no alternative. And then plus people want to be in these five stocks, the biggest stocks in the market. Yeah, it's kind of a funny, um, you know, kind of situation here, right? These companies are such massive monopolies. They have such massive um, moats. They have these massive uh, cash hoards. They really can do whatever they want. They've done a very good job of trotting all over the globe and kind of cozying up to whoever it is that they need to do to kind of keep their things intact. They they kind of draw, they play the long game um, with a lot of these issues that they have on the regulatory front in other parts of the world. And then they end up just paying you know, big fines that end up being rounding errors on their cash hoard. So I feel like we've been talking about this for an awful long time. If you think back to 20 years ago, where Microsoft had some very, very serious issues with regulatory bodies here in the U.S., that was a defining, defining situation for that company. I don't think we're going to see that with any of these uh, MAGA names right now. All right. For more on the story, let's bring in Loop Ventures' Gene Munster. Uh, Gene, always great to speak with you. Um, Do you think that the markets have it right in terms of basically shrugging off this news? Well, this with Section 230, yes, I want to take a step back, and I think your astute panel has uh, captured this well, is that these companies are the fabric of our lives. And because of that, we're just going to continue to see different edges around that regarding more legislation, people being upset, political parties being upset about what happens on all these platforms, competitors being upset about how uh, one company may exert some market uh, force. So we are uh, going to have this con- these continual waves. And the wave we're talking about today is Section 230. And the proposal is essentially to give uh, political parties or give anyone an ability to sue a, a social media company for libel. Basically, if there was an uh, if there was some slander or there was some censorship that was not appropriate. Uh, the bottom line with that and, and sticking to the, the topic of today with 230 is that uh, that, in fact, is at the core of this topic that you've discussed a lot about is the impossibility of legislating truth. That cannot happen. Therefore, 
that uh, this essentially is going to go nowhere, and that is why investors shrug it off today. But I like where you're going with this. The bigger topic, the more important topic, is what are the other waves ahead? What are the other uh, bigger potential threats of breakup for some of these tech companies, and how should investors navigate that, which undoubtedly will be topical over the next few years? So in your view, what is the, what is the most pressing and realistic um, regulatory uh, effort to rein in big tech, in your view? I, I think uh, the one at biggest risk is relative to Google and how it ties. Google has 42 different products that are tied together. They, um, they have a clear monopoly in global search. And uh, for example, how Google search impacts Google Maps and the impact on local businesses I think that's something that we're going to see more about. If you kind of work down the list with Facebook, it's around privacy and uh, some data sharing, which has been, I think, addressed. And then you get to Amazon with what's happening with their uh, how they use AWS to fund its retail approach. That seems like a little bit of a distant argument. And then last is Apple, and are they exerting some sort of pressure on their developers? Are they not treating them well in terms of some of their uh, the take rates? But you can debate whether they have actually uh, a market share to demand. So I think if, to answer your question is it is individual. There's not one uh, sweeping uh, uh, legislation that's going to impact all tech companies. These uh, regulators and uh, politicians who are looking to gain goodwill will be taking rifle shots at these uh, companies. And I suspect, uh, with the exception of uh, some changes that probably Google will have to make, most of them will will come out on the other side in this a couple of years. And I hope, I hope regulators ultimately take a step back and. I've been a longtime follower of tech. I will. Uh, I try to uh, weigh both sides of all debates, but I think we have seen in the last few weeks the importance of tech in terms of uh, helping us uh, move forward as a, as a globe. And I hope that that uh, gains some goodwill with regulators. Oh, you think that'll make a difference? A regulator well, who who might who might want to go after an Apple or might want to go after Google will say, you know what, I, I've been relying on Gmail during this pandemic, and so I'm not gonna I'm well, not gonna well, go for I was, it. I'm thinking about uh, let's think, let's look at Amazon and logistics okay. and what they've done AWS in the pandemic, and uh, I think that there is a case that consumers view these products. If the goal of regulators is to protect consumers, I think there is a case that consumers have a greater uh, uh, dependency and affection towards these products today than they did four months ago. Right. Good point. Gene, thank you. Always good to speak with you. Gene Munster you. of Loop Ventures. I, I think that's an interesting point. It's an interesting point that these politicians are spending a lot of time uh, discussing all these issues surrounding big tech when consumers, for the most part, depend on big tech in their everyday lives, Guy. Yeah, 100%. And, and listen, let's not dance around this. I mean, I think Without being political, this is 100% political. I don't think there's any other way to address it. And I'll say this about Google. I mean, I, my pushback is Google's not a monopoly. I mean, the Yankees aren't a monopoly. There are dozens of other teams that play Major League Baseball. The Yankees happen to do it better than everybody else. And the same thing with Google. There are a lot of search engines. Google just does it better than everyone else. So I understand that's somewhat nuanced. But, you know, Google is the cream of the crop. And you can call it a monopoly. I don't think it's a monopoly in the true sense of the word, Mel. Tim, quickly. Yeah, the, the Yankees haven't done it better than the rest of Major League Baseball in how long, Guy? I don't know, 10 years? Um, but uh, anyway, I, I think I understand your metaphor. <laughs> All right.
Coming up. Hertz share is getting whipsawed again today with the company did in response to regulator pushback. And later, Game On, a new season of Fortnite is out. What does this mean for the gaming trade? All that and much more coming up on Fast. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Hertz scrapping plans to issue new shares while in bankruptcy. The company had drawn fire from regulators. Here's what SEC Chairman Jay Clayton had said uh, earlier today on Squawk on the Street. In this particular situation, we, we have let the company know that we have comments on their disclosure. Um, in most cases, when you let a company know that the SEC has comments on their disclosure, um, they do not go forward until those comments uh, are resolved. There are, other, there are other processes here that companies have to follow, um, including if the shares are going to be listed, meeting continuing uh, listing requirements for those new shares, and there are professionals involved. Hertz has seen massive interest from retail investors since its Chapter 11 filing May 22nd. Shares jumped when the latest news came out, but is there any reason here, Karen, to take a look? I mean... This whole story is absolutely crazy, I think. Yeah. Well, the whole story is absolutely crazy. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I sort of feel like good for Hertz for giving it a go. I mean, it was a creative way to think about how to bolster their balance sheet. One thing that's sort of interesting that Clayton said and from the 8K that Hertz put out this afternoon is it sounded to me like they already started selling shares. He made reference to normally they don't go ahead with it until the SEC comments, and then in their 8K they said they've suspended. Right. Um, so they might have already done some, which I don't think really changes the story dramatically, but it's sort of interesting. It's just, I, you know, you have to, I, I can't understand the whole thing. You have to really believe that this is going to, this business is going to turn around dramatically before they get out of bankruptcy and that the stock's going to have some equity, and I just can't imagine to have some equity value. That's not the, what's going on is totally unrelated to that. This trading, it's absurd. If you look at Genius Brands or a bunch of others, I mean, I, you know, we've talked about it with Dave Portnoy a lot. This is just a ridiculous game. I mean, it's, if you if you read the filing, if you read the SEC filing on Hertz, I mean, in the stock offering, they say. Uh, you know, these issues may be worthless. It may be delisted. I mean, <laughs> the caveats on the stock sale are numerous, and, and yet uh, it looked like people were willing to go in, Tim. <laughs> well, if a bankrupt company can sell stock, they will. Um, and, and this is kind of gets to the overall environment. But they, they can't deceive the public, uh, and their disclosures have to be accurate. Um, disclaimers and caveats aside, um, the facts on the cash and the facts on the obligations, of which there are many, uh, and, and again, we, we started to see through some of their filings, uh, that AK gives a lot of information. Uh, they're, they're behind on payments on their ABS. There's a lot to do here, uh, and an equity offering is not going to solve that. 
All right, here's another stock we're following in Nikola. Pairing gains from earlier in the day after a report that its founder, Trevor Milton, exaggerated claims about its electric truck, suggesting at the unveiling of that truck back in 2016 that the truck was drivable. Well, according to this report, citing people familiar with that truck, the truck was missing key components, including a fuel cell. A spokesperson for the company telling CNBC Milton, quote, never deceived anyone. He was showing a demo prototype inside a warehouse in 2016. Parts were removed for safety. Nothing was exaggerated. Nikola shares had been up as much as 9% earlier in the day after analysts at Cowan initiated the stock with a buy rating, the first Wall Street firm to initiate coverage on this one. Um, Guy, you know, I think this is interesting. This is, this is sort of a, a trust. We're working to change the world. Trust me, we're going to have this product out at a certain time. And when you hear a report like this, it sort of makes you think, hmm, I don't know. Yeah, but what does this remind you of, Mel? I mean, you, five years ago, I mean, the same probably conversations we were having about Tesla, quite frankly. So it's just this, it's just this year, apparently, potentially, that type of story. But, you know, the two conversations we just had, Hertz and now Nikola, it speaks to basically what Jeremy Grantham was speaking to, I think, at large in that amazing interview at the end of the day with Sarah and Wolf. You should go back and listen to it if you haven't. And he's speaking to the, some of the things that we've been talking about for a while. And if you don't, you know, if you think I'm a fool, which a lot of people do correctly, by the way, you should listen to what he says because he's echoing a lot of the same things we've been saying now for the last couple of months. So this is clearly uh, a buyer beware environment. And to the earlier point about Hertz, Karen breaks this down perfectly, but she would acknowledge, I mean, this comes down to just a greater fool's theory thing. I buy it at a dollar, hoping somebody else buys it from me at a dollar and a half and so on and so on. And quite frankly, that worked really well for a lot of people for the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we had Trevor Milton, the founder of uh, Nikola on Fast Money, earlier this week, Tim. So I, I don't know what you make of the company itself. Well, the model is, is, is different than Tesla on some level, and obviously the fuel cells are a different approach. Uh, the fact that they are outsourcing their production, the fact that they are teaming up in commercial right away. So um, not apples and oranges, but a, a different approach and different innovation. And it's very exciting. What do you pay for it? Uh, not, not this, you know, not what the stock's valued at now. All right. Coming up. Bad news for the banks. Options markets are betting on major dividend cuts. Should you ring the register on these names? We'll have the report in the trade straight ahead. But first, the mega rally taking a pause today. One top strategist says watch out below because more downside is coming. We've got him next. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Until we have a vaccine, 
what we've seen in other markets. The consumer is still going to be concerned about safety. They're going to be making kind of this uh, unconscious cost-benefit trade-off. We do need a vaccine. I think certainly our expectation, though, is that uh, a vaccine is probably, uh, you know, call it 12 to 18 months away. Welcome back to Fast Money. That was McDonald's CEO Chris Kamzinski on Mad Money last night, raising his concerns about getting fully back to business until a COVID vaccine comes out. But here's a question. Does that 12 to 18 months even matter as long as the Fed is in play? Chair Jerome Powell today again saying the Fed will keep its, quote, foot on the gas until it is clear that the economy is on the mend. So why can't we just get on board here, Guy, and ride this train? I mean, we know the Fed is going to do everything in its power use its entire balance sheet to keep this economy going until we get that vaccine out, at which time business will pick up. Yeah. No, listen, that's fair. And it's made a lot of people a lot of money. Tim has correctly said, you know, don't make this more complicated than it has to be. The pain trade is higher. A lot of people, a lot smarter than I am, say don't fight the Fed. It it all makes sense. But it shouldn't be that simple. There has to be some ramifications. And we're 12 years into this. So I wonder aloud, at what point do we hit the point of diminishing marginal returns? Now, clearly, I thought it was a while ago, but I think we're headed there. Um, The Fed can only do so much. And, you know, at some point, the market's going to call BS on them. And I'll point this out as well. If the dollar has some precipitous drop, which I'm not suggesting we're at the precipice of, but it certainly appears as though that there's been a sea change in dollar sentiment, that's not particularly bullish for equities, in my opinion, despite what history might tell you. All right. Well, our next guest says the Fed could actually be the biggest risk to stocks right now and that the broader uh, economy could also be in trouble. Sven Henrik, founder and lead market strategist of Northman Trader, joins us on the phone. Welcome, Sven. It's always great to speak with you. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me on. Why is the Fed ultimately the danger and when will we see that point in time? You know, the, the Fed really has created a massive asset bubble here in, in the last few months. The, you know, the lender of last resort has become the lender of the entire resort, and no red line shall remain uh, uh, uncrossed. The Fed has basically created a gambling casino at this point, and all the gamblers have moved in. From my perspective, the danger here is that the Fed is overdoing it in, 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 in zombifying the economy. They are in process of inserting itself ever deeper into markets. And it, that makes the Fed itself of becoming too big to fail. And the Fed losing control over the asset bubble is now the biggest risk factor to the economy. Remember, Alan Greenspan several times had already mentioned if markets drop 10 percent, that impacts GDP growth by, by 1 percent. And so now we've had this massive rally, which still could be a bear market rally, by the way. And, you know, asset prices have reached levels that we've rarely ever seen. And let me give you two examples here. One specifically one is, is market cap to GDP, and I know Guy has mentioned this on the show before. There's only been two periods in history where mar- market exceeded so far or disconnected so far from the economy that it's reached level of 150 percent and higher. One of those areas at times was the Nasdaq bubble in 2000, and the other one, ironically, was the February 2020 top because obviously. The, the Fed had already printed significant amounts of money in 2019 uh, with their repo operation. So we, we ran into this COVID crisis massively uh, extended from an economic perspective. And so now we're here now, and this is really fascinating. Last week, June 8th, 
we actually hit 152% market cap to GDP. And just to put this in perspective, typically what you see inside of a recession is that there's a discounting process for assets. And, and actually in 2000, 2007, we dropped to 50% to 75% market cap to GDP. So to be inside of a recession and at these extreme market valuations we've never seen before, and congratulations, I guess the Fed just managed to do something unprecedented, manufacture the first asset bubble inside of a recession. Dan, you got a question. Yeah, so Sven, you know, uh, Let's just say the Fed is this bridge, right, to a vaccine. That's how we started this conversation. Um, you know, I, I guess barring some horrific second wave of the virus and some really bad news as far as the pace of a vaccine or therapies, what do you think the downside is? I mean, the Fed told us this week with the with the corporate bond buying. I mean, they're just going to keep pulling things out. And I'm kind of like, you know, shruggy emoji here. Um, you know, so for me, worst case scenario, I see twenty six hundred um, downside in the S&P 500 in, in a bear market here. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think we're, you know, we're not going to see a massive cash crash like we just saw in March. There's too much liquidity in the system. But we are definitely open for sizable corrections here in the next few months, uh, especially if we do not get the type of V-shaped recovery that I think a lot of people are at the moment presuming. And, and, and the valuation risk is so high and the multiple expansion risk is so high. Specifically, what I maybe want to point to is that in the last three years, really, we've done, in, in terms of the market, repeat the same patterns over and over again, which is all rallies have come on either monetary or fiscal expansion, and all market drops have come at the point when basically fundamentals have reasserted themselves. And, you know, let's, let's face it, the, the big picture here is that the market moves have become ever more extreme. The rallies to the upside as well as on the downside. Last week was a good example, right? Because all of a sudden there was a quick drop of 10%, 15% on the small caps, for example, in, in just four days. Why? Because these markets are p- building these compression patterns on the, on the VIX, and the rallies are so steep with so many overnight open gaps that these gaps never fill in many sessions, but technically they want to revert and fill those gaps. For that reason, actually, knowing there's so many gaps still below 2,700, all the way down to 2,300, is a lot of open space from a, from a technical perspective. Savannah, it's always great to speak with you. We hope you'll come on again soon. I'm Thanks, sure this Elizabeth. is a, a conversation that will continue. Sven Henrik of Northman Trader Group. Uh, Karen, what do you think? Well, I think so definitely the Fed's there. That's been driving the market, of course. We know that. But it's interesting. I mean, Powell says over and over and over again, he needs additional help, right? He wants fiscal stimulus as well. So um, and I think we'll get that, which will just allow this sort of bridge to be built out a little longer. I don't know if it gets us all the way over the chasm of what COVID-19 causes, but um, I mean, until then, I, I think it's I think there's kind of a floor. I just don't know that it's an at the money floor. So this kind of market, I, I, I find it very difficult and I don't find things that I really want to buy. All right. Coming up, calling all Fortnite fans what the latest season of the blockbuster game means for creator Epic. But first, Guy is warm enough to throw heat. Pitch's top stock idea. Big games ahead or will you get ghosted? Yeah, that's a hint. He'll take the mound when we return. More Fast Money in two.
Welcome back to Fast Money. The Dow and S&P 500 snapping their three-day win streak in today's sell-off. But there was one bright spot in the action that caught uh, Guy Adami's eye, so he's fired up to do his fast pitch. Guy, what are you looking at? Hi, Mel. I love the power pitch. It's one of my favorite uh, bits we do here on CNBC's Fast Money. And my power pitch tonight is Snap. Now, kudos to Dan Nathan, who was on this long ago, and as was 386, very bullish on the name, and I've sort of gotten on back of that as well, but I'll give you three reasons why. You go back to the fall of 2017, this stock topped out around $21 or so. Well, technically, it appears as though we're breaking out through the, that, that old prior high, number one. Number two, partnership with Zingit. Don't underestimate that. That's a big deal. I'm not a gamer. Probably won't be a gamer, but a lot of people are. And I think that's really important to the story. And I think that's one of the tailwinds they've gotten. And the third one is they've really updated their developers app and opened it up in a very Apple-like way. Now, I'll mention this. Snap was sort of left for dead. Facebook was sort of leaning on them in a major way. If you go back to when this was a $7 item, it appeared as though Facebook was going to really put... Uh, the death knell on them. And they've gotten off the mat. And look at them now. So I think Facebook's taken their eye off Snap, much to Snap's pleasure, I'm sure. And this is a name that I think is going to prize a lot of people to the upside. So for those three reasons, and probably many more, I think Snapchat goes higher from here. Does anybody have uh, any questions for Guy concerning his pitch or any other topic they choose, uh, Dan? Yeah, guy. When's the last time you uh, snapped, buddy? You know, it's it's it's, it's an excellent question by you. I, I I don't think, for example, <laughs> I've never bought anything on the Amazon, but doesn't mean I can't be bullish on the stock. And I don't have a Snapchat application. Although when the okay. when the snap when the application stores reopen, I plan on going. Uh, Personally, I heard some of these Apple stores have reopened, so maybe I'll get on the line. So this is definitely not a Peter Lynch sort of uh, style <laughs> fast pitch. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Far no. from it. This okay. is not Peter. This is not any of the Lynches. No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's see how our traders are voting. Uh, Tim Seymour, what do you say? So I, I learned this trick like on a Zoom COVID call where you're like snapping people in and it's usually good news. I'm actually going, oh, snap. I'm actually a seller. And, and I'm sorry, Guy. I actually agree with the addressable market and how these guys, the engagement has been extraordinary. I hate the 180% move, and that's mostly my reason for negativity. Uh, get them next time, Clubber. All right. Karen? Yeah. I don't know if you can see this. It's not very creative. But I'm going to pass. And the reason, kind of <laughs> echoing Tim, it's the giant move, and I'd rather be with uh, Evan Spiegel's Evil nemesis, Zuckerberg, long Facebook. Dan. Yeah, I'm also passing here. Um, you know, Guy is also very generous <laughs> with his accolades. Um, you know, Snap, I think the, probably the last time I was bullish on it was in the low teens or something. It wasn't hard to be bullish on it down there with like a $14 billion enterprise value. Up here now, it's a little different story here. So I give you a lot of credit. You're playing the momentum. My biggest worry about Snap right now is TikTok. And, and it has just got massive momentum here in the U.S. We know that they just hired Disney's former head of streaming to run their U.S. operations. This is going to be a force to be reckoned with uh, with Snap in the near term. So to me, I'm a seller of Snap here near 22 bucks. All right. So on the desk, no buyers for Guy. 
Poor guy. But will you out there vote for Guy's Fast Pitch on Snap? You can vote in our Twitter poll at Fast Money. Before the results, a new season of Fortnite and new funding possibly on the way for Epic Games. Just how much is the Fortnite creator worth? Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another season for Fortnite's Battle Royale mode getting underway. This amid reports that the game's creator, Epic, is close to securing a massive funding round. Josh Lipton's got all the details. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, it's the moment Fortnite fans have been waiting for. A new season officially launching today. That means players can now drop into this partially flooded island where they can hop on water skis, hitch a ride with sharks, and battle new enemies called Marauders. Fortnite remains a force, one of the most popular video games ever made, now with 350 million registered players. In April alone, Epic Games, its publisher, said players spent more than, get this, 3 billion hours inside the game. Tim Sweeney founded Epic Games in his parents' basement back in 1991 with just $4,000 in personal savings. Beyond Fortnite, the company today is well known for its House Party app, which allows users to video chat with friends and family, an Unreal Engine, popular software that developers used to build games. Reportedly, Epic is now close to raising $750 million of funding at a valuation of about $17 billion. But the company we know also does have competition from other free-to-play battle royale games like Activision's Warzone and EA's Apex Legends. Investors have piled into those names. Both are up more than 20% this year, far outperforming the broader market. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton. That is absolutely stunning to go from $4,000, Dan, to a $17 billion valuation, possibly. Yeah, so Mel, this company, though, you know, guys like Guy have no idea what's going on. House Party, Fortnite, this is all like over his head here. Um, But, you know, in April, this company had a rap concert in their app that attracted 27 million people at one given time. I mean, you just can't get those numbers uh, anywhere else like that. So there's multiple different ways they're um, attracting consumers, much like we just talked about TikTok a little bit, doing something a little differently and taking um, a bunch of screen time from those traditional apps. I think Fortnite um, is here to stay and they're gonna continue to keep innovating. So $17.5 billion valuation seems probably on the light side given the trajectory of this company. Uh, Tim, is this a, a threat to some of the other public competitors, or does this impute a valuation that maybe the other competitors should get more of? Now, e- yes, I, I think this, this shines a bright light on the sector. Mobile gaming's on fire. Um, so $17 billion valuation. Remember, Tencent owns 40% of Epic Games. They did that deal, uh, I think, about eight years ago. Uh, a great deal for them. A great gaming company. Uh, EA, Apex Legends. I, I kind of like that one. Um, I think the valuations in the space are actually really interesting. Uh, they got destroyed about a year and a half ago, but we're in a effectively year and a half breakout. And the numbers and the valuation at around 25 times when also these guys, many of them, uh, these companies should be targets for, for media companies that have flagging, uh, you know, at least content and, and needs that I think they can deliver in this interactive environment. So stay in the sector. This is good news for the sector. I mean, if you can host a, a concert within one of these games that attracts that sort of viewership care, and it really sort of makes you think, especially in this pandemic time, how, how uh, event creators can rethink their businesses. 
Yeah, I mean, as, a, as someone who owns Live Nation, that, you know, hopefully they don't uh, get recreated out of their business, because I think ultimately that business will come back. But um, I, I agree with Tim, and I thought that these have been a potential target for media companies for a long time. But I'm wondering, with the post-COVID valuation, uh, I guess, I don't know, it's just readjusted a lot higher, if they're actually, and what's happened to the media companies, the reverse, if they're just maybe now too expensive for some of them. Uh, Guy, you get the last word, just so you can respond uh, to the... Um Remarks that Dan made about you. Well, a few things. Attack. It's amazing. Josh Lipton just gets better looking every time he comes on. I can't even see him. He just exudes it through the screen, number one. Number two, I don't know how to spell umbrage, but I take it with Dan because I was one of the 27 million people at that concert. And, yes, it was warm. And that was pre-social distancing, number two. And number three, we have mentioned on a number of occasions, Take-Two Interactive uh, comes out T-T-W-O, moving to the upside, and that is now within a whisper of its all-time high. So despite my age, I like the space. Coming up, big banks may be gearing up for something that hasn't happened since the financial crisis. We'll tell you what it is, and one key name options traders are eyeing. And tonight on Mad Money, the CEOs of Union Pacific and Nextdoor weigh in on the months ahead for their companies. That is tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stress has hit the banks a week from tomorrow, and there could be some big changes in store for the big banks. U.S. banks paid out a combined $32.7 billion in dividends in the first quarter, or almost double the profits they earned. Options traders are betting that won't be the case for much longer. CNBC.com's Hugh Sun did some digging, found that J.P. Morgan's dividend in particular may be on the chopping block. Hugh, what, do you, what are traders telling you? So traders are, are merely telling me what they are observing in the market. And if you look at um, the options market and you look at uh, J.P. Morgan, the options imply a 33% cut to their dividend by January. And as you know, J.P. Morgan is sort of the best in class. You know, most, uh, they had a record year uh, in, in earnings last year. And so this is something that's kind of remarkable to me, that there's this sort of dissonance between the expectations. And, you know, if you talk to the sell-side bank analysts, particularly for J.B. Morgan, everybody's relatively confident that they're all going to pass the stress test with the perhaps exception of Wells Fargo. Yeah, I'm going to bring in Karen into the conversation. And Karen, this also is um, completely uh, discordant with what Jamie Dimon himself has said about the dividend. Right. I mean, he talked about, you know, cutting the repurchases was a much bigger um, a much bigger deal than the dividend, which I think he called it sort of a drop in the bucket. I would be surprised from what they've said so far, unless this quarter is just so much more, I mean, unless the provisions are going to be so much bigger than they thought when they announced in April, um, that I'd be surprised if they cut their dividend, actually. It would, I mean, stranger things have obviously happened. Wells Fargo, they really should be thinking about it. At 7.5% yield, they're just not getting the benefit. That yield is ridiculously high. Yeah. Dan, what would you make of this sort of action? Is there another way to explain it? Uh, there's no other way to explain it um, other than the fact that it would be a cataclysmic event for bank stocks in 2020 if J.P. Morgan, best of breed, were to cut their dividend, uh, especially when you consider we keep hearing again and again that the banks are not the sources of this crisis, that their loan loss reserves are in good state, that the valuations are very reasonable. But I think it's really important to remember that J.P. Morgan does not act well. It is down 20% or 28% on the year. The S&P is down 3%. It is telling you about 
back half of the year bankruptcies that they're exposed to, that those loan loss reserves are not adequate, that they will be ticking higher. And that's what the implied dividend cut is also telling you. So I keep saying this. Yeah, I'm getting whipped around here with this trade in the banks, but they're telling you something and they're telling you the same thing about the crowding in the mega cap tech names and the speculation in the bankruptcy names and the day trading stuff. It's all telling you that things are not exactly sound right now. Mm -hmm. And so I I don't know. The S&P 500 down 3% in the year given this pandemic that we're in, getting this economic crisis, something smells really bad here. I'm not talking about a crash, but I'm saying that the equity market is divorced from the economic reality of what we're facing. And JP Morgan and that implied dividend cut says a whole heck of a lot more about it than what the MAGA stocks are telling you. Getting back to Hugh, Hugh, though, yeah. I mean, every single bank is expected to pass, I mean, aside from maybe one, uh, to pass the uh, Fed stress tests with flying colors, correct? That, that is the default expectation now, and I think it's important to bring this out here. You know, the X factor here is, is the Federal Reserve. These are the guys who are running the exams, and nobody knows really how tough the Fed will be. So you had, you know, you had some recent comments to talk about um, an increase in potential scrutiny tied to COVID-related loan loans. And, and as you know, there are so many millions of Americans who are in some kind of loan forbearance. Whether or not these people start actually repaying, once the forbearance ends, I mean, this is an X factor. So you have the Fed stress being a, uh, the Fed stress test being an X factor. For the first time, they're implementing something called the stress capital buffer, which is another X factor. So more than, than any time since, you know, probably, you know, 2011 or so, there is this wide range of outcomes that you just don't know what's going to happen. And I think that's, that's represented in a lot of the activity in the options market right now. Mm. Hugh, this is fascinating. Thanks so much for bringing it to us. Hugh Sun of CNBC.com. You can read that article on what the Fed stress test might mean for banks. Head on over to CNBC.com for the full write-up. Meantime, J.P. Morgan isn't the only big bank that options traders are zeroing in on. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. So I think there's some interesting things in that article. I, I read it myself, I have to say. So obviously the options markets can tell us a lot about what the dividends are forecasting going well out in time. So you can look all the way out to January 2022 to get a sense of what the options markets are implying for dividends. And there are some dividend cuts baked in. It's not just the stress test, by the way, that might be the reason for that. Take a look at the dividend payout ratios. When you see bank earnings decline, that might be a reason why those dividends could also be in potential jeopardy. But some of the options trades that we were seeing today, including some of the ones that we saw in Wells Fargo, which is arguably one of the more stressed of these banks, we saw more calls trading than puts, outpacing by about two to one. Some of that was some short-dated call buying. The July 2nd weekly 31 strike calls, that's Thursday. That's going to be two weeks from Thursday because, of course, we're going to have Friday off as a result of the July 4th holiday. Someone was buying those calls, paying a little over 50 cents for 620 of them. And I think what might be going on there is that trader might be speculating that the news comes out of those stress tests a little bit better than expected, and you might get a short-term pop. That's not a play necessarily that the dividends won't be cut, but it is a play that you could see a short-term pop after we get the results. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe, uh, Options Action, full show, Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Getting back to what Hugh had said, though, Guy, in terms of the X factor of whether or not people who are in forbearance will actually go back to paying those loans, that's an interesting factor to throw in there. We, we're having the stress test at a period where things are okay now because they're in forbearance, but in a month it might be a different story. Much different story, Mel. And again, remember, you know, you wonder what company, they're not saying it, but you wonder what the landscape's going to look like employment-wise six months from now. I'm not that optimistic.
All right. Up next, we're down to the last few minutes before we reveal the results of our fast pitch poll. Is America buying guys pitch on Snappy, though everybody on the desk said no thank you? <laughs> Stick around to find out. Welcome back. Uh, time to reveal the results for guys fast pitch, and it ain't pretty. 70% of America said no. So there you have it, Tony Braxton. Time for the final trade, Tim Seymour. Yeah, and the dance version, too, means it was extra bad. Uh, <laughs> Pfizer, extra good. I think the chart, which is difficult, valuation, very interesting. Karen. Yes, I'm going to take the other side of the Dan trade so I don't get to fight with him as much as we normally do. I'm going to be short the TLT with the Fed just printing money. We could see inflation at some point. Dan. Yeah, at some point. I stay long the TLT, short the XRT. <laughs> Guy. Snap, suckers. <laughs> Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.